The earliest Christians, as we know, were defined by their practices of giving. And they did so with glad and generous hearts, the book of Acts describes. The early followers of Jesus moved from huddling in the upper room to sharing the gospel widely with the ancient world. And a defining feature of this new missionary community that would come to be known as the church was the sharing of their resources. All who believed were together, Acts says, and they had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and they would distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. It was their signature. The great preacher Peter Gomes once said, if we study the New Testament for the uses of money, a lot of us won't like what we find there because the practices run so counter to our culture. But we should remember, these practices were equally countercultural in the ancient world. The early Christians were known by their world for this practice of generosity, and it was viewed as peculiar, as unique, as suspicious by others. In the second century, there's this wonderful story shared by the Greek philosopher Lucian, who is writing mockingly of Christian generosity. And he describes how a cynic philosopher Peregrinus had been imprisoned, and when he was in prison, he decides to pretend to be a Christian, knowing that claiming to be a Christian will mobilize all of the support and the care of the Christian community so eager to give to him, to serve him. And Lucian writes almost sarcastically how the Christians rushed to his aid, quote, the Christians left nothing undone. Every form of attention was shown to him, and not in a casual way, he writes, but with extravagance. Lives defined by the hope of resurrection, will stick out. They will always appear somewhat peculiar or confounding to the world surrounding. And so this was one way that those early Christians chose to demonstrate their belief that Christ had been raised by giving hopefully and deliberately and with the joy of the Lord animating their giving. No practice is written about more in the letters of Paul than generosity and the giving of money in support of the church and of those in need. Paul, for whom the church is a body where Christ is head and all are essential, says that part of what makes the church the church is that all are celebrated for the gifts that they bring. All commit to provide for a common ministry that is greater than their individual gifts, their best efforts. And this faithfulness is, for Paul, an urgent part of following Jesus. It is the most practical way of living out the kingdom of God here on earth. Living and giving generously so that the ministry might be enlarged. So that the church might be expanded and the abundance of the followers of Jesus might be a witness of a resurrected Lord and a gospel that can change the world. And we can hear all of this possibility and all of this urgency around it in this passage from 2 Corinthians. You might remember from last week that Paul's letter is meant to re-energize these Christians in Corinth toward generosity, specifically to giving to a fund for those who are poor in the city of Jerusalem. This Jerusalem collection is a major theme throughout Paul's writings, and he spends chapters 8 and 9 talking about it in 2 Corinthians. Some think that these two chapters were originally their own separate letter. It was so urgent that Paul sent this message express mail. And the letter reminds us of the abundance that grows forth from our generosity, but it also gives answers to our questions today. That is, how are we to give? We hear in verse 7, each of you must give as you have made up your mind, 
Paul says, not reluctantly, not under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So how are we to give? There are two answers in our passage today. We are to give deliberately, and we are to give cheerfully. First, give deliberately, or in another translation of Paul, give how you have decided, not hesitantly or under pressure. The biblical standard traditionally for such deliberate giving is known as the tithe. The tithe meaning the first fruits, or the first 10% of what we have given back to God. This is an agricultural concept where the fruits of the land, grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, Leviticus says, were to be reaped and given away to a greater good. And this was before the farmer knew that there would be enough left of the harvest to go around. And so it meant living in faith. It meant relying on God to provide that there would be enough left of the harvest. It meant the expectation of the blessings of God. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will be not room enough to store it. Malachi says. Maybe easier said than done, though. A preacher, it is said, once paid a visit to a farmer who was a member of his church. He was trying to convince the farmer that he should tithe. If you had a hundred cows, the preacher began, wouldn't you give ten of them to the church? I believe I would, the farmer replied. Well, if you had fifty sheep, would you give five of them to the church? I sure would, preacher. Well, if you had ten pigs, would you give one of them to the church? Now, That's not a fair question, the farmer complained. Well, why not? Well, because, he said, you know that I actually have ten pigs. I suppose it makes more sense as an ancient tradition than as an operative standard for here and now. Then again, if you study the practice throughout the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, you find that it was 10%, maybe two or three times a year that people were giving. So really, sometimes more like 30% given back to God. And then there was that rich young ruler in the community that, that Jesus asked to give 100%. Sell everything, he said, and give the money. See, the biblical witness, it's not really about setting the percentage or deciding what we will give to God. It's more about deciding what we will keep for ourselves from what God has given abundantly to us. The tithe as a standard has roots in the story of Abraham. In the book of Genesis, Abraham travels to distant lands and he's told by God that he will be blessed in order to be a blessing for others. In fact, for all of the nations of the earth. And at one point, his nephew Lot gets into some trouble with some warring kings and Abraham is able to do what no one else could do. He defeats these opponents and he rescues his nephew Lot in the process. And amidst the celebration of this victory... A curious and somewhat mysterious man named Melchizedek shows up with some bread and some wine. Melchizedek blesses Abraham. And that causes Abraham to realize that he's in the presence of a foreign ruler and he decides to give back 10% of everything that he has with him that day. And then after Abraham gives him a tithe, Melchizedek then basically wants to make a deal with him. And he asks for all of the people that Abraham had with him. Melchizedek promises to give him the spoils of victory all around him. And Abraham looks at Melchizedek and he says essentially, look, I don't make deals with powerful people because I have a covenant with God. We have a different 
kind of promise going on. We are called out to be a blessing for all of the nations of the earth, not just for you. And that's where our deliberate giving begins. That's where the biblical concept of the tithe begins, with the recognition of a larger covenant with God. Although, as C.S. Lewis once said when asked to share about Christian stewardship and generosity, on the whole, God's love for us is much safer to think about than is our love for God. Because our love for God, it begins to ask something of of us. It costs us something, doesn't it? It's sacrificial. It's life-altering in practical, material ways. And so we have to go about it with intention. We have to decide deliberately for ourselves what we are going to give. A.J. Jacobs is an atheist who is culturally Jewish. In his words, I'm Jewish in the same way that Olive Garden is Italian. He's an editor at Esquire magazine, and he wrote a funny and also powerful book recently, uh, not so long ago, called A Year of Living Biblically. Some of you may have encountered this. The title tells it, he lived literally with the practices of the Bible for one year. So he grew out a beard, and he wore raw fabrics, and he lived as legalistically as he possibly could, finding that many of the practices seemed burdensome, seemed rooted in a very different context, And he didn't really believe in much of what he was doing. But interestingly, the one practice that moved him, that he really came to believe in deeply, was the practice of tithing. This radical countercultural idea of giving 10% of everything. He called it a pain mixed with pleasure. When the confirmation emails would ping in, I felt good. He described this haunting line from the movie Chariots of Fire spoken by Ian Charleston who plays a deeply religious sprinter in the 1924 Olympics who says, when I run, I feel His pleasure. When I run, I feel God's pleasure. And Jacobs writes, as I gave away money, you know, I think I might have been feeling God's pleasure, which is odd because I'm agnostic. I don't know if there's a God or not nor if that God is accessible to us, but still I felt some sort of higher sense of purpose. It was like this cozy ember that started at the back of my neck and slowly spread its warmth through my skull. And then he said, I felt like I was doing something that I should have done all my life. Well, I don't know about you, but I haven't done this all my life. I haven't practiced deliberate generosity. I shared with you last week of how my faithful parents instilled a practice of giving a dime for every allowance dollar each week at church and how that faded for me as circumstances and needs changed as my resources felt hard-earned instead of freely given by my generous parents. This was made even worse by the fact that I'm more naturally a spender than a saver, which dates back to my childhood as my young sister would accumulate just wads of allowance bills in her Hello Kitty wallet And I would come with my empty pockets and I would beg to borrow and you can imagine the kind of leverage that that gave to a younger sister. And so as an adult, as I settled into church life, as I started to grow in Christian generosity, I remember at times I'd receive a statement from my church and I would be shocked how little that I had actually given of the resources that were mine. I'd give here and there, but not with intention. My friend and fellow pastor, Reverend Darrell Aaron of Providence Baptist, once said, oh, you were tipping God. (laughs) Here and there, when convenient, when notable. So it has not been a lifelong practice for me. 
But as we have grown and our covenant with one another and with God has strengthened, Jenny and I have been deliberate and intentional in, as Paul says, deciding for yourself what to give. And I tell you this, not to be showy, and certainly not because I have it figured out, but because as your pastor, as we're thinking about generosity, I want you to know honestly that I am still growing in this. As part of spiritual growth and renewing covenant with God and with the church, when Jenny and I first started giving deliberately, We knew we had to start somewhere, so we started with a small percentage. And then we tried to inch it up year to year. We started, truthfully, by giving what was left over. We missed more often than I would like to admit, but then slowly we were able to see just why this habitual, regular practice of giving was so important. And I know I am not the only one, and so believing there is power in sharing our stories, I want you to know what deliberate giving means for us this year. Our family has been tithing or giving 10% of my income back to First Baptist Church. This represents the most substantial part of our financial generosity on the greater, more fixed portion of our family income. And we give because we believe it is but one way we can respond to God's abundant gifts to us. And we give this to our church because it is here that we are most fully shaped as followers of Christ where our children are cared for and raised into followers of Jesus, where our lives are knit together in a community larger than ourselves, and where we join together widely for the work of love in the world. No other organization or cause is as central to our lives of faith as you, as our community here at First Baptist Greensboro. I've given in my life through cash or check, and right now we give our tithe through online banking, and it comes out of our bank account automatically with the check. And we give with this frequency, recognizing the church's financial needs are regular and ongoing, just as our own are. And it reminds us that this gift to the church is as important to allocate as anything else. We do this without coercion. We do it freely, as Paul says. No one on the finance committee or the personnel committee or any leader of this church applies any kind of pressure or expectation. And in turn, we would never provide that for anyone else. No one knows what any of us give except one person, our financial administrator. I don't know what you give to this church. Our pastoral staff does not know. Finance committee does not know. So that what you and I give to God through this church is between us and God. Also, in our giving, we consider my spouse's income, Jenny's income, which is freelance and which can fluctuate based on the scale of her own business. With that, we have given to other organizations outside of our church that are close to our heart and to the work of God in the world, sometimes regular, sometimes one-time gifts. And because we are still growing, and because we recognize the gifts of God in our life, this year we are committed to tithe on both of our incomes to this church and to consider how we can grow beyond that into the future. Beyond what we do on a regular basis, we hope to have some flexibility to give spontaneously as we feel led and motivated and compelled. And we hope that we're saving and investing so that someday when we are no longer living, there is something that stretches beyond our chronological existence. We're able to leave a legacy gift to our church, gifts that in this day and age are so absolutely crucial and life-altering for churches that are seeking to live out faithful and bold and imaginative ministry. Friends, I say all of this not to say that we have arrived, but instead to say the opposite, to assure you that as a pastor, I am still learning how to give deliberately, and I'm still finding what happens when I do. 
And so the only question is really, what might that mean for you in this year? The truth is, most people don't tithe, and if you do, you shouldn't do it under any pressure or coercion, and don't feel that God or the church is mad at you if you don't, because no one is. But can you do what this passage asks us to do? Can you start somewhere? Can you give deliberately, maybe with a smaller percentage, but still given with intention? Or could you increase and give with greater intention and care this year to the ministry of our church? Many of you who are members know that our church is experiencing a significant deficit in our giving. We don't know precisely why. There are usually a lot of reasons for that. Some of it, the larger trends of life for all of us being less and less institutionally centered and religious life being less and less church-centered. Some of it, the residual effects of a pandemic that was, let's face it, the single greatest disruption of religious and institutional life in our lifetimes. But some of it is also particular to us. Some of it is transition as our church experiences change and growth. And some of it is identity and clarity. It is true that not everyone wants to give to a church like ours. Not everyone feels joy or cheer or hope about the principles that we hold, about the convictions that we express, about the understanding of the gospel that we seek to embody. But if you do, will you give deliberately? Will you give as you have decided? When we give this way, we feel it, don't we? And not only in the ways that change our spending or cause us to feel financial stress, we feel it because we are giving to something that affects our family and shapes our children, and we are giving to something full of people that love us and care for us. We are giving to a place where Hattie Mae, who is crawling around back there so beautifully throughout this service, will be able to grow and be precisely whom God has created and called Hattie Mae to be. It feels good to support the ways this church impacts our community feels good to give to a place with growing and clarifying vision and direction. A place that is seeking to be counter to the patterns of the world and demonstrating how to grow together in love. We feel this because it feels powerful to support a place that is a home and a refuge for so many. Like the member of our church who just yesterday emailed me, shared more of their personal story and journey to this place and said, I never imagined that I would find a place where I was not merely tolerated where I was accepted, where I was home. It feels good to give to this, to honor the legacy of those who have come before us, 27 luminaries that we lit yesterday on All Saints, last week on All Saints Sunday. It feels good to see how these gifts allow new people to find in this place a home and a place of belonging. And it feels good to know Gifts are multiplied as they combine with others and they're sent out to any number of causes, some of which we would not have the vision to choose or support ourselves, but through the ministry of this church, through the leadership of this community, our gifts are distributed widely to impact ministry around the world. It feels good to honor a church that cares for people through every moment of their lives. A little over two weeks ago, I received an email and it was entitled, Thank You. It was thanking our church for care and support as we journeyed with our members, Hugh and Cindy Myrick, through Hugh's journey and ultimate death with the terrible disease, ALS. It was an email from Alan Myrick, Hugh's brother. 
I also have ALS, he said. My wife Julie and I would like to meet with you. We met last Wednesday in my office. Then on Thursday of last week, Alan entered the hospital for complications. And last Sunday, just after our worship service here, Alan died. His funeral's tomorrow, here in the sanctuary at First Baptist. And as we sat in my office just 10 days ago, Alan shared some details of his life pre-recorded on his automated voice. And after he did this, I said, Alan, I just want to be clear. Are you asking us to care for you in this last part of your life? Are you asking us to help remember and honor you when you die? And he answered immediately, yes. And then his wife, Julie, spoke. We trust you to do that. We've seen it. This church knows how to take care of people. We give to that. And when we do, we feel it. It feels good. Or in Paul's language, it feels cheerful. God loves a cheerful giver. Paul writes this word, cheerful. It comes from the Greek word, hilaron, which is the root of our word, hilarious. God loves a hilarious giver. And what is conveyed in that is that our giving might even provoke us to unconstrained joy in this life, knowing that in giving we have received and in releasing ourselves, we become freer than we ever knew we could be. And maybe we even start to feel something of God's pleasure as we do. And maybe it becomes so apparent that it can be said of us, we've seen it. This church knows how to do that. This church knows how to give with intention, knows how to demonstrate joy. This church knows how to embody the generosity of God. This is a church with glad and with generous hearts. And may it be so. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.